Well, good evening. Uh, if you are visiting or new, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard from Heidi, we've made it uh, to the end of our eight topics within uh, Proverbs as we come uh, to this issue of justice tonight. And as she's introed, it's a huge area to think about. And really, we'll just be scratching uh, the surface tonight. Um, so let me uh, ask you to join me in prayer and ask that God would really help us as we wrestle with what is a big topic. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you are a God who reveals yourself uh, through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we acknowledge that you are a God of justice, uh, that you discern between right and wrong, that you set standards that we may respond to and live by. And Lord, we pray tonight that you might help us to reflect on what it means uh, to live if we have trusted in Jesus as Lord, how to live as people who act justly. Uh, we ask that you might convict us, uh, that you might encourage us as we think about our part in our world today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, justice is such a complex topic. And it's often defined by one issue for an individual or maybe one incident that's happened in their life. And yet it's such a broad area. You know, there are issues as diverse as racism, abortion, sexual assault, adoption, domestic violence, homelessness, immigration, Aboriginal deaths in custody, gambling, fair trade, and the list might go on. Let me just pick on the one of homelessness for a moment. On the topic of homelessness, there's 116,000 Australians who will sleep rough this very night. 44,000 of them are under the age of 25, and 10,000 of that 44,000 are in New South Wales alone. They're pretty stunning statistics for a country that is seen to be wealthy and first world. That's one in every 200 Australians doesn't have somewhere to sleep tonight. Now, we ask the question then, why? Why could that be happening in our society? And the answer is complex. The majority of these people are homeless because of housing affordability, because of domestic violence, because of family breakdown, because of substance abuse, because of mental health issues. And as you start to think about all those factors, it becomes very clear quickly that so many of these issues are intertwined. Justice is complex because there are so many issues at play in our fallen world. And not only is justice on the one hand complex, but it's also overwhelming. The injustices in the world are so vast that it can just feel too much for us to think through. For example, did you know that um, one in five people in the world live on a dollar a day or less? One in five people will go hungry today in the world, will not have enough to eat throughout this day. Um, every day, uh, landmines kill or maim people. In fact, one person every hour. There are 44 million child labourers in India alone. There are more than 150 countries that use torture as part of their policing or prison system. There's 127 million slaves today in the world. There are 30 million people in Africa alone who are HIV positive. 
There are 120,000 women and girls who are trafficked into Western Europe each year. And the illegal drug trade in the world is now estimated to be about $400 billion a year with all the social problems that come with that. As you start to pile up all those numbers and all those problems across a vast array of issues, it does feel very overwhelming. We begin to think, where would we start as we think about the issue of justice? The numbers are depressing. The cries for justice that must be going up to God every second are innumerable. And it must make God weep as he looks at his world. And it should make us weep as well. And in the face of such complex and such overwhelming injustices in the world today, what are Christians called to do? What can we be expected to do in the face of that? What does God tell his people to do in the book of Proverbs on this issue of justice? If I can boil it down to one phrase, our big question tonight is this. How can you and I act justly? How can we act justly in our world? Our first answer to that question is this. Answer number one, by judging fairly. By judging fairly. Notice again what was read for us in Proverbs 24, verses 23 to 25. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you're innocent will be cursed by peoples and denounced by nations, but it will go well for those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come on them. See, here I think we see the first thing that believers are called to do, God's people are called to do, is to judge fairly, to judge with integrity. Justice in the social context is important. It's important to God. The wisdom of God promotes a well-ordered society in which Justice is both done and is seen to be done. And notice that there's a great cost to the individual who shows partiality, who doesn't judge fairly. They'll be denounced by people. They'll be hated. And conversely, there's great reward for those who will actually uphold what is right, who uphold the innocent, who convict the guilty. We're told they will be richly blessed. Now, they're good motivations, we might say, but perhaps they seem like selfish motivations. If that were all that might motivate somebody to act, we might think, what do I get out of it? Then perhaps that's why we've got so much corruption in the world. Because what happens if the person who's wanting to corrupt a situation comes along and offers lots of money? That's how corruption happens, isn't it? There's so many kickbacks in the world, there's perhaps a greater incentive often to do the wrong thing, it seems. And so are those motivations alone going to be enough to help somebody actually live on a path of integrity? Well, Proverbs has more to say. If that were all that it said, uh, we might worry. But come with me to Proverbs 21, verses 3 and 13 and 15. And notice what else God has got to say on what should drive us on this topic of justice. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Okay, so here are some more motivations, some further motivations. Firstly, in verse 3 there, did you notice that the primary motivation there is actually our relationship with God? It's about serving the Lord in the end. 
that it's what pleases God in verse 3 is acting justly. Verse 3 is actually saying that God is not bought off by sacrifices. He's not interested in people that just go through the religious motions, who just pay lip service to him, but actually in their lives there are no actions that are right. There are no just actions. They don't care for integrity. But God does. He desires right and just actions each day. And so to judge fairly is to honour the Lord. Integrity is important. But there's also social motivations there. Not only that we might be loved or hated, as we saw previously in Proverbs 24, but doing right and just things will lead to the community hearing your cries, caring for your concerns when you're in need, just as you might have heeded the cries of the poor, as we read in verse 13. You know, the person who has no social conscience inevitably cuts themselves off from care from others, others who they may need in their moment of need later in life. And it also brings great joy on the one hand to those who live rightly, to see somebody that's actually standing by things that are God's standards, who are rejecting the ways of the world and the corruption. The maintenance of justice establishes a well-ordered society and those who live according to that are so encouraged when people stand for the truth. We see that in our society all the time, don't we? We long to see that. But look, as you and I um, think about this for ourselves, as we apply this first point, um, how do we judge fairly in our interactions day by day? Because perhaps as you've heard me talk about this first point, you're thinking, well, this just seems to be so narrow in focus. You know, like I'm not a judge in a courtroom. I don't get to decide who's guilty and who's innocent. This like, sounds like it's a message for somebody else that perhaps has that power and position. But, you know, I'm not in that role. Well, let me say to you that Proverbs 21 and 24 can be applied much more broadly than in a court of law. I hope you've seen that the focus in these passages is actually about our personal opportunities, our personal opportunities to not show partiality, to actually act with integrity in our daily choices. And so we have many of them. Every social interaction you're in can uh, present a dilemma where there is right and wrong, where there is an opportunity to stand up for somebody who is being oppressed or to stand up for a principle that's being disregarded. You might find that at work regularly, where people want to cut corners or do things that are not showing integrity to others. You might see that even in your sporting teams or in hobbies that you do during the week, where you see people overlooked and other people elevated, where favouritism plays out all the time. We actually face this stuff a lot. Now, look, I've seen it a lot in sporting teams, in sporting teams I've been part of, in sporting teams that I've now observed that my children are in. You know the deal. Um, the coach has their son or daughter in the prime role in the sporting team. Other kids remain on the bench and hardly ever get a go in the match, but their child is never substituted. Favoritism plays out a lot in sporting contexts. You know, there was actually an article back in 2011 in the Australian newspaper that was titled this, The Ugly Truth about Australian sport. And it summarised a report by the Australian Sports Commission. This was a government-sponsored report, a survey that um, took in 3,700 respondents. It was said to be a landmark survey. Never have we done one so big in Australia, looking at coaches, um, administrators and players. And as they got back all their responses about ethical and integrity issues in modern sport, this is what they found out. 
that negative coaching behaviours and practices are the biggest issue, more important than match-fixing or performance-enhancing drugs. That seems so sad, doesn't it? Because it's about personal relationships and favouritism, and yet we're told it's rife. What was found was that coaches often showed bias and favouritism, often demonstrating a verbally abusive coaching style in the way they dealt with people. And close behind that was negative administration behaviour, where respondents complained of conflicts of interest, poor selection processes and decisions, favouritism and nepotism. You might say to me, why am I raving on about sports? Does it really matter what happens to Johnny and the under-six soccer team? You know, what is that when it comes to the justice issues of the world that we just mentioned earlier? Well, actually, justice starts right there in the small little decisions that we make each day. Justice starts with you and with me and the opportunities that we have as we interact with other people. Because if we cannot act justly in those smallest things, how can we possibly go off and solve the problems of the world, wars and homelessness or whatever it might be. We can be influenced. We can be pressured by our society to reflect its biases. Have you found as you've navigated Australian society that those who are rich often seem to be favoured and those who are down the bottom of the ladder are overlooked, that their opinions are ignored? It's strange how it's still a big thing today, isn't it? Or what about the fact that we so often find that those who have lived in Australia for a long time, especially if they're a white Australian, seem to get a lot more priority than those who are refugees or new to our country or come from another background? Why is it that such racist sort of favouritism plays itself out in so many ways in our society? You know, the benefit of the doubt is given to those who have power. And those who don't, well, they can just be ignored. And it happens even in churches, doesn't it? Sadly, it can. And in fact, it was something that was happening in the first century church. So much so that James, which is considered the wisdom book of the New Testament, found himself writing about these issues quite a bit. Let me take you to one section in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. See how this gels with the themes that we've been reading in Proverbs. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This passage goes right to the heart of a matter that Jesus had been summarizing at many points in the Gospels. Remember, as Jesus said, as we relate to other people on the horizontal, that the whole of the law of the Old Testament can be summarized in one command, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. And the problem with these kind of actions, by not judging fairly, by favouring one person, discriminating against another, we're violating that royal law. We're ignoring God's word to us. And James wants to say such thoughts, such actions are actually evil. They should not flow out of God's people. And this is because it's a failure to realise the God who we claim to worship. God never shows partiality. He is concerned for all people. 
And so we fail to reflect his character, to live as he calls us to live, if we act in a way like our world so often does, with injustice. Now, I want to say to you again, as we mentioned at the start, justice issues are complex. They're overwhelming when we look on a world scale. But I want to point out in this first point here quite clearly that the whole tone of Proverbs to begin with is very much about how justice starts with you and I. It's about our personal interactions to begin with. If we have not made a start there, then there's no need to move on to bigger things. God knows uh, that we're not aware of so many situations in the world, so many injustices, let alone able to speak into them. But he also knows where he has placed you, the interactions you have, the workplace he has you in, the friendship circle that you're a part of, and the situations that come up regularly where he's wanting you to show integrity, to speak and act as somebody that's following him. And he's calling us to do so. And our ability to speak and act with integrity will indicate whether we actually know God. Because if we claim to know God and we don't love our neighbour as ourselves, then the first problem as we think about justice is us. It's us. We're called to judge fairly. That's point one. A second answer to our question. Second answer to our question of how we're to act justly in this world. Secondly, by speaking up for the oppressed. By speaking up for those who are oppressed. Here is moving beyond perhaps our personal situations to those around us where there are big issues to consider. Notice what is stated again in Proverbs 31 from verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. It's not for kings, Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, the context here is a king. It's not even an Israelite king. There was never an Israelite king named Lemuel. They think it was probably an Egyptian or a Babylonian king. And here is some advice from his mother um, telling him how he should act with integrity as a ruler. But there's great wisdom here. It's an inspired part of God's word. And as we read what is called of him to do, we realize he's not to be distracted. He's not to be anesthetized from his role where he should be championing the needs of the poor the welfare of those who are oppressed in his kingdom, those who cannot speak for themselves. It's literally the idea behind that phrase is those who will never get a hearing, those who are just dismissed by the society in which they live, who have no rights, no voice. And he is to champion their welfare. He's to stand up. That's what it means to lead. Now again... As we think about this for ourselves, you might be quick to dismiss these instructions and think, well, look, I'm not the king or the queen of some kingdom. I'm not even the prime minister of Australia. I'm not in charge of some government. Who am I to make decisions and to care for the poorest, the most needy, those who are destitute in my society? But I think we're too quick to dismiss. This does apply to us. It doesn't have to be applied so Narrowly, we need to realise that we're actually being entrusted with a lot of power in a democratic society like Australia today. Sure, if you were born 3,000 years ago and you lived in Solomon's kingdom or something, you'd probably have very little opportunity to say or do anything. But that's not the case for us today. 
We've been empowered. We live in a democracy where we have a voice, where we can express our concern for issues, where we can lobby, where we can make needs known. And so we've got an opportunity, indeed a responsibility to do so. We're not without a voice, and so we should use our voice. We shouldn't remain silent, as so often believers do, on big issues of injustice that can rock our society. Well, how do we apply this principle, this principle of speaking up? As I said in the introduction, there are so many big issues, and I just want to zero in on one as an example that we might apply some principles that you might consider in a whole number of areas that perhaps you're interested in that are different to this one. But let me focus on the issue of abortion as an example in our society. While there are many people who cannot get a fair, a fair hearing in our world, uh, the unborn literally have no voice. And God is interested in the injustices, including this one, that our society perpetuates. Let me read to you a few words from Isaiah 59, which speak about God's judgment on some of the social injustices amongst his people some 600 years before Christ. And then reflect on that, on this issue of abortion with you. Isaiah writes, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. See, the judgments against Israel and the Old Testament are a foreshadowing of God's final judgment in many ways because we can see his concerns which will remain the same even as this world is wrapped up and the final judgment takes place. And as we consider the words there in Isaiah 59 and reflect on the issue of abortion, what we would need to say is that as a nation we have on our hands the blood of 100,000 unborn children that we kill in the womb every year in Australia. That's two out of every conceptions in Australia. 28% of all children conceived are killed. And that rises to above 50% when we start talking about teenage pregnancies. It's dumbfounding, isn't it? And God says there'll be a judgment in verse 3 on our words, on our deceitful words. We try and hide ourselves from this terrible reality. What deceitful words, you might say? Well, words like termination, planned, parenthood, pregnancy screening, when what we really mean is the killing of unborn children. There's going to be a judgment also in verse 4 on our silence. God will want to know why so little was said and so little was done about 100,000 people dying every year. You imagine if we sent that many people off to war, say in Afghanistan or Iraq, and we were losing 100,000 people a year. Wouldn't they bring the army home overnight? Say, we can't allow this carnage to continue. 
What if that was even the cyclone toll in Queensland? They would make that whole state cyclone-proof. They would stop such carnage. We couldn't allow this to go on. And yet 100,000 children die every year and people hardly bat an eyelid. And it's because we worship idols like career and education and material wealth. You might say, well, hang on a sec, that sounds very harsh. I mean, aren't there abortions that take place because the mother's life is at risk? There are other extreme circumstances that really call for such a heartbreaking decision to be made. Absolutely, I don't want to downplay it or the difficulty that any woman makes in making such a decision. But I want to say to you that we often want to believe the best because we're ignorant of the reasons that so many of these abortions are made. We optimistically believe that you know, there'd be very few people that would not think about this. But the South Australian government passed some legislation several years ago that required doctors in that state, the only state in Australia, to actually write down what the reason was for the abortion that was taking place. And what emerges is this. Every year, a tiny fraction, less than 0.1% of abortions performed are undertaken to protect the life of the mother. The vast majority, as high as 96%, are performed because of either cost or convenience. In fact, 84% of women write on their form that the reason that they are having an abortion is the cost of raising a child or the interruption of their career or study. That's the truth. So what should a Christian response to that injustice be? Who's going to speak up for those 100,000 Australians? Well, I mean, we could just ignore it. We could continue in our comfortable lifestyles and be unperturbed by what's taking place. But I don't think that's a reaction that God would call for in Isaiah 59. Surely the first thing to do is to stop being silent about the issue. To speak up, to voice our concern that our government allows that to happen. We should certainly take the opportunities to remind those that govern us that we actually think this is a problem. That this is not okay that we should write letters, that we should lobby local politicians, that we should ask them as we move towards the next election, what is their stance on this issue of abortion if we don't know it? Realising that the person that we're voting for, what they, where they stand on this issue of 100,000 Australians each year. More than that, we should be willing perhaps even to demonstrate. Certainly many Christians do. The government's now making that harder you notice you've heard about the legislation of putting boundaries 50, 100 metres around abortion clinics so nobody can get near them, see what's happening within those walls, and nobody even encouraged people to have a second thought about it. But we should act. And it's not just about politics, is it? I mean, surely it's about praying. Praying that God would have mercy on our country. That he might even change people's minds about such attitudes that they have. Oh, it's not really a real person. It's just a fetus. That's not 
the God of the Bible's view. That's not a believer's view. And so we need to pray that people will change their thinking. More than that, we need to support existing services that are provided to support the difficult, often costly decisions uh, for women to continue with a pregnancy, perhaps when the child has a disability and they're discouraged from continuing in the pregnancy. Or perhaps when the child is even healthy but they don't feel they can adequately provide for it. Now, some of us may have the opportunity to help parents or single mothers struggling financially or emotionally in that situation, to actually stand with them and support them as they care for their child, not to just love in words, but also in actions. Indeed, for some of them who will then give up their child for adoption in the first few years of its life, to be as believers those that really support the foster and adoption systems within this country that can gather a child up who is going to be given no love and placed in a family where a Christian couple might actually raise it to know the Lord. There are lots of ways we can practically act. Amazing opportunities, even small steps that just one individual can make. But look, I want to say it's an overwhelming topic and it's just one of many. And I think we get to the end of just thinking about one topic like that and we think, it's just, it's so big. It feels like anything I do would just be like a drop in the ocean. There's this sense of frustration because, well, I'm called by God to judge fairly. I'm called by God to speak up for those who have no voice. And yet it feels like I can have so little impact. What change, what difference will it make if I say or do something? Is there anything more to be said on this issue of justice that feels so hard? Well, yes, there is. Let me give you a third answer to our question. How is it that we can act justly? Yes, we need to judge fairly. Yes, we need to speak up for those who have no voice. But thirdly, we have to know that Jesus is the one that brings ultimate justice. Jesus is the one who solves this problem by bringing the true justice that we long to see happen. You know, we've got to realize as we look around at our world, as we feel the frustration of the mess that our world is in, the chaos, that Jesus is the one that makes the difference in all this. I mean, he has ushered in God's justice in his earthly ministry. And he will finalize God's justice when he returns at his second coming. And in fact, that justice was promised even before he was born, centuries before he began his earthly ministry. It was prophesied that the Christ who would come would bring justice. And so people longed for his arrival for that very reason. Have a look at Matthew 12, verse 8 with me. It'll come up on the screen. Here is my servant. Whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 42 verse 1. This had been predicted 600 years before Jesus was born. That when he came, that he would deliver the justice that people so longed for. And when he arrived, he announced that he was the one. He is the Christ. But if Jesus was the Christ, the one who promised, was promised that would deliver justice, how does he do it? What happened in his life that brought us a step closer to justice? Because as we look around at our world today, we'd think, well, not much has changed. The mess that existed 2,000 years ago exists today. What difference did Jesus make as he came and lived amongst us? Well, here's the difference. It comes in the gospel. Have a look at Romans 3, verse 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood 
to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Notice this, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, let's just take a step back for a moment before we consider what is being stated in Romans 3 there. As we think about this issue of justice, we have to acknowledge something. The elephant in the room in justice is this. God is the one who is perfectly holy and just. If his justice was to be brought down this moment, then all seven billion people or so on the earth would be found guilty and would be rejected forever by him. We are all unjust sinners. And if I really want God to deal with justice, I need to realize that he's going to deal with me and my sin. It would involve me being rejected by God if it weren't for Jesus. But in Jesus, there is hope. And you notice the concern here is not from the Apostle Paul whether we will see justice in this life, but whether God's perfect justice might be compromised. He's worried in verses 25 and 26 that God who is perfect and holy might be seen to be unjust himself if he overlooks sin. How can he overlook all the mess in this world and not judge every single person? How can anybody found, be found innocent? How can anyone be saved and that not be an injustice? But that is the beauty of the gospel. The Apostle Paul wants to say in verses 25 and 26 that through Jesus' death on the cross, he can both uphold his perfect justice because sin is not minimized. It is dealt with in the death of his son. He pours out his wrath on Christ so that at the same time he can justify ugly sinners like you and I. He can be right to do so because sin has been fully dealt with in his son, the Lord Jesus, so that he can forgive us and do so righteously. There is the glory of the gospel. Both are achieved at the cross. Sin is not minimized. It is fully punished. God's justice is seen to be done. It is satisfied. There's just one problem, isn't it? As we think about the gospel and the justice that Jesus brings on behalf of the Father, and that is that Jesus brought justice through injustice being shown to him. Have you thought about that? The only person who ever acted justly, who always spoke and acted with integrity every moment of his life, he is the one who bears our punishment. It just seems so wrong, doesn't it? How can he bear our sin and the punishment that it deserves as the only one who did the right thing, who truly loved his neighbor as himself. But that was God's plan. It's not a shock as Jesus dies. It was actually, again, predicted centuries before he even came. Have a look at Acts 8, verse 33 with me. Here is um, the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53, and Philip's going to come up and explain it to him and help him understand what he's reading. And he reads this, In his humiliation, that is in Christ's humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? You see, as our perfect substitute who always acted rightly, he was the one that bore our sin. And if that were the end of the story, it would just seem so unfair. But that is the 
wonder, the miracle of the resurrection on the third day, isn't it? Because if he truly was the sinless one who could come as our substitute and put everything right, then surely he could not be held down by death. Surely even as he bore our sin, that he would overcome the consequences of our sin and rise from the grave. And that is what he did on the third day, vindicating him as the one who is truly righteous. More than that, announcing that he is Lord, that he is over all people and that he will be the just judge, ruler of all people. Everyone will bow before him who died and rose again. Well, that is a great picture for us as we think about the gospel. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way as he brings these thoughts together in Acts 17, verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus will judge all. The one who brought justice will also deliver the final justice. And it's right. But I think as we come to that point, we realise that there's a now and not yet about this whole justice issue and that this is our tension, this is our frustration. We so long for justice to be done in this world and that is a right feeling that is given to us by God. We are made in God's image. We are meant to discern right from wrong. We're supposed to be in pain because of the injustices we see. It's good that we long for things to be put right in this world, but we have to acknowledge at the same time that things will not be fully squared away until Christ returns and Judgment Day happens. We will not see the injustices of this world fully dealt with in our life. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to work towards seeing things done with integrity in our world. It's actually a healthy tension that we need to live with. And it's that healthy tension, actually, that has spurred on some of the greatest social reformers that our world has ever seen. Let me just run through three quickly and focus on the last in a moment. William Wilberforce, the famous British reformer who managed to get laws through the British Parliament stopping slavery, stopping the trafficking of human flesh in Africa in particular, had to fight and fight and fight. What drove him on in his battle to see justice done in this world was the future hope that he had of heaven that one day things would be made right. George Muller, the amazing man who um, built hundreds of schools and orphanages throughout England as he saw so many children on the streets and gathered them up and educated them and shared the gospel with them. He was driven by the future hope. He kept saying, well, I work hard today because I know what is coming in the end. And even more for Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you know the story of Amy Carmichael, famous missionary to India. Um, she headed over to India at about the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, and she would stay there until her death in 1951. In fact, she was there for 55 years without furlough. She never came home and she was buried there. She went to India to share the gospel and she found herself within a short time helping children who were being prostituted in Hindu temples. Uh, one girl sought her out. 
who had got to know her, and that just grew and grew and grew from there. And she started numerous orphanages in that country and became the mother to many, many children. And when she was asked about what spurred her on, why she was actually doing this, why fight so hard, sure, you've saved hundreds and thousands, but there are millions here in India. What difference will your life make? Well, she said, well, I'm spurred on by the hymn In Heavenly Love Abiding because there's a stanza in that hymn that reminds me of some biblical truths that are driving me to this day. The stanza was this. Green pastures are before me, which I have not yet seen. Bright skies will soon be over me where the dark clouds once have been. My hope I cannot measure. My path to life is free. My saviour is my treasure and he will walk with me. And that spurred her on for 55 years, knowing the hope of heaven, that justice will be done, that sin will be dealt with one day, that everything will be squared through Jesus who will judge fairly, spurred her to keep living powerfully in the present, to see justice done. And that's how it should be for us too. Well, is what, what is driving you at this point in your life as you think about justice in this world? We're called to live by God, as we've seen, in a way that judges fairly in our personal interactions, start small with the things we do. We're called to speak up for the oppressed, which are around us, but perhaps on the other side of the world as well. But we need always to keep in mind that justice will finally be done in the return of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. He is the one who will bring that ultimate justice that we just long to see. And so in the meantime, we spurred on to live lives that seek justice now, knowing that Jesus will see that progress completely fulfilled one day. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that this world is full of injustice. Indeed, some of us here tonight... Uh, my, may have experienced huge injustices in our life already. But Lord, we just pray uh, that if that is the case, you would not let a root of bitterness grow up in our lives, that we would forgive, that we would hold on to the truth, that we can entrust our situation to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, for he will bring justice. But Lord, in the meantime, help us to live as those who are speaking up for those around us who are without a voice, who stand up for the oppressed, for the poor and the needy. Help us not to turn a blind eye, but rather to seek justice in this world, knowing that that is your heart and that one day you will bring that to completion. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.